What I do is I just tend to look at each thing as an art form. I think getting up and standing in front of an audience of 20 people is a really different art form than getting up and standing up in front of an audience of 2,000 people. And I think understanding what your role is in that room, in that day, at that moment, is an art form. And preparing for it and doing well and being asked to come back or being paid to do that, um, I think has its own sort of structure and cadence and, and just overall sonic power to it. Welcome to the Art of Humanity with Jessica Ann. Listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. Explore creativity and consciousness. Evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Now, here's your host, Jessica Ann. Hi, it's Jessica Ann, and thank you so much for listening to The Art of Humanity. This is episode 29 of season 3. After a rare February with no full moon, March gets two, just as we had two full moons in January. I'm really excited about my guest today. He has a refreshing approach to marketing and advertising, and just like two full moons in one month, it's pretty rare. The marketing world needs self-help. In a world that's telling us to hustle and pitch yourself, My personal philosophy is, don't pitch yourself, fix yourself. My guest today is someone who has focused on the long term. While pitching and sales funnels are sexy topics in the internet marketing world, I appreciate people who take a different approach. He focuses on longevity, which is mindful marketing. I call it embodied marketing. Missing from the marketplace is the focus on integration and embodiment. Most marketers strive, hustle, grind, and work themselves to death. Embodied marketing helps you align, integrate, and work yourself into bliss. It celebrates being in your body instead of being in your head. It celebrates feelings, both good and bad, instead of merely thinking. This helps you to create more meaningful conversations around your industry. It adds context. I recently participated in an embodiment workshop this past month so that I don't just understand embodiment in my head, but I really feel it on a visceral level. But let's take a step back. What is embodiment? Embodiment means a tangible or visible form of an idea, quality, or feeling. Most marketing from the last paradigm makes you feel icky. Embodied marketing makes you feel alive. It's not just wisdom, but it's a mindful approach to marketing beyond the superficial external seeking. It's beyond the perfect bodies. It's a beautiful mind. John Mayer said this, and it really lights me up. If you're pretty, you're pretty. But the only way to be beautiful is to be loving. Otherwise, it's just congratulations about your face. Using a mindful approach in your marketing is a way to use your pain and your pleasure, your light and your dark, to create something exquisite something only you can create. The celebrities and people who don't add context around their physical beauty are mere meat suits. Don't just show me your body. Show me your soul. Show me the meaning behind why you do what you do. If you're pretty, congratulations. But make us care about something other than yourself. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll often see me in a bikini. Although I'm human and some days are better than others, I strive to live a life that has meaning and context. 
I strive to feel good about what I create for myself and for my clients. But here's the thing. For some reason, society assumes that women posing in bikinis are seeking validation from strangers on the web. Sure, validation feels great, but we need to integrate the full spectrum of the human experience into our marketing. A bikini is a reflection of the lifestyle that I want. Wild, aligned, free. By feeling into what feels good to me, I can see where I need to align with more of what I value and care about. And what I care about is the context and the soul that moves through your brand. I believe that you can have impact and influence, but not at the price of integrity. I believe that content marketing in your business bridges the mind and the body, and it creates a sacred dialogue between you and your customers. Content marketing is a way to track your authenticity. I launched my business in 2012 using content marketing. I grew my company into a six-figure business without spending a dime on advertising. It's not a short-term strategy. It's a big-picture approach. And my business is living proof that it can be done. The content that you publish today, when done right, can be found years later. It's one of the best return on investments you can make for your business. An investment in content is an investment in yourself not just for who you are today, but for who you want to become. The act of creating content positions you as a thought leader, builds good karma and trust, and brings in business. My guest today has been writing online since 2003. And even though the technologies and platforms have changed, we're ultimately doing the same thing, communicating and connecting with each other through human content. So without further ado, here's my guest, Mitch Joel. He discusses his personal philosophy of the marketing world and the fundamental changes that are happening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, if you do enjoy it, please leave a review in the iTunes store. Welcome to the Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness to allow you and your business to evolve. Today, I'm so excited to have with me Mitch Joel. Here's his official bio. When Google wants to explain innovation and marketing to the top brands in the world, they bring Mitch Joel to the Googleplex in Mountain View, California. Marketing Magazine dubbed him the rock star of digital marketing and called him one of North America's leading digital visionaries. Mitch Joel is the president of Miram, a global digital marketing agency operating in 20 countries with over 2,500 employees, although he prefers the title media hacker. He's been named one of the top 100 online marketers in the world and was awarded the highly prestigious Canada's Top 40 Under 40. He's also an author, blogger, podcaster, and passionate speaker who connects with people worldwide by sharing his innovation insights on digital marketing and business transformation. Mitch, I'm so excited to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? I'm doing so great. (laughs) I started following your blog years ago. Um, You know, you've started blogging back in 2003, which is, I mean, amazing. Bananas. Yeah. (laughs) So when I first discovered your work, um, it was probably at the end of 2011, early 2012. You'd already been writing so much since then. And I just can't even wrap my head around that. Uh, you know, how has, and I've read your book, Control-Alt-Delete, back when it came out in 2013, which was super transformative in how I approach business and marketing. Um, and you talk a lot about change in Control-Alt-Delete, in your writing, and in your style. 
And what it really comes down to, it seems, is that it, we're still here. I mean, here we are five years later, and we're still talking about change. <laughs> what is the biggest uh, change or transformation that's happening that you see today in the marketing and business industries? That's a great question. There's no doubt that you know where I stand today, there's sort of two paths. One path is the overall platform. And I'm a pretty big proponent in virtual and augmented reality. And I do think that as that technology gets cheaper, more accessible, more interesting, and moves forward, that we'll sort of filter away from web and mobile and, and all that stuff and really experience digital content as we're doing it now in, in those types of environments. I think that'll be the sort of one platform to rule them all. That's a bit of a ways out. It's, it's here now. There are a lot of limitations to it and what it means to business today, but I think that that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is obviously the sort of machine learning, artificial intelligence implications of this. Um, now, again, that's not an area that I claim at all to be an expert in. It's an area that I'm interested in. I'm reading a lot in. I'm, I'm writing and speaking about it to formulate my own thinking on it. Um, I, I'm definitely one of those marketers that tries to understand context and content over sort of hands in. I actually was playing with, you know, Edison, Watson, whatever it might be, um, and I don't, so so I can't claim to. I will observe. I'll watch videos. I'll go for product demos. But I actually, you know, have never really been a marketer that is hands on, other than creating content around the space. But when I look at where machine learning is at, and where marketing automation is at, and and then some sort of ancillary areas of artificial intelligence, whether it's you know watching AlphaGo beat the best Go player, or or documentaries about stuff on on Netflix, I I can't help but but see and feel that that is going to have a fundamental change in how we communicate and connect to one another. Yes, and I love what you said that you're always looking at the context with the content. That's a huge thread throughout your business and your brand from my standpoint, from what I know about you. Um, and I took a look at your LinkedIn profile, and I, I have to wonder, I believe you dropped out of college, but it looks like you were on your way to majoring in philosophy at Concordia University. I'm yeah. always curious. So the best thought leaders today, or at least the people that I enjoy reading the most, seem to, one, have a philosophical approach to their work, and two be a bit of a rebel in your in your upbringing you kind of combine the two you you wanted yeah. to study philosophy and along those same contexts philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of reality and existence how do you think trying to major in philosophy back in the day has shaped your work in the world yeah i don't i don't know if it did cuz I, I bailed on it um my situation was was really different what people may not know in connecting the dots on my history is that i actually started writing professionally as a music journalist in the late 80s. And I was really young. I think I was about 17 at that point. And so I was moving through that industry and, and very much in an area of love and passion and an area that I was super interested in and engaged with. And the opportunities just by happenstance and maybe my own entrepreneurial way of thinking came to be that I could start publishing my own magazines. And so I went down that road with a business partner. 
and and that really bumped into where I was post secondary and then at the college level. So I found myself in my first semester of college. You're right with a major in philosophy. Candidly, it's not like I was proactively trying to be a philosopher. I was trying the path of least resistance to get into a school where I could then figure out what I wanted to do because I was very uncertain about what was interesting to me. I just enjoyed reading and thought it might be interesting and thought it might give me a bit of a pass in terms of being able to make other choices as I went down my education route. But what happened is that this magazine started to really come together and work. And I found myself in the uncomfortable place of having to go back and speak to my parents and say, I can't handle both. And, and and I knew what I wanted to do, but there was for sure that sort of family guilt of not continuing on in your education. And my mom was pretty vocal with the idea of, look, this business thing seems to be an area that's really interesting to you. You seem to be doing it really seriously and not just sort of like, you know, a couple hours here, a couple hours there. You've already had success in that industry and built a network. You can always go back to school if it doesn't work. But if you continue down school and stop this and try and restart in the future, that may not be so doable and or possible. And so that gave me that extra push of confidence that I already had to go down that road. So it wasn't like I was uh, very deeply philosophical and think about the implications of business. I was sort of just like, let me just get into college and, and get into uh, some form of courses. And hopefully that won't take up too much of my day while, while this magazine thing comes together. Mm-hmm. So it was really more of like a, a holding pattern with a bit of insurance and a bit of insecurity. And that was really it. And, and the truth is, you know, to this day now, I mean, we're talking decades later in my life, I, you know, I, I regret not having a degree. I regret regret not having an MBA. That doesn't mean it's not too late to go and pursue those things should I choose. But it is something that I feel I'm missing. And I think part of my infovore-like nature of reading everything and trying to, to really dig deep into a lot of topics is my own insecurity because I don't have a degree. My you know my, my sort of natural reflex is, well, that person went to university and got a degree and went down this sort of tried and true way, they must know things that I didn't have access to. So I'm going to overcompensate by reading a lot or meeting a lot more people or just trying to lap them. And I guess that sort of engine and that momentum just kept through my entire career. And that's just, it's who I am to this day. Like I sort of wake up, you know, on fire and trying to figure out like what, you know, what's, what's to read, no do today, which ties really well into the, the reason the blog has been going on so long or my podcast or my speaking or books or whatever it is. It's really that it's just me trying to think of what happened today that might be of interest that I can share or talk about or discuss. And a lot of the times what people don't get is they'll feel like, you know, well, Mitch wrote this great article or, or you did a, this interesting podcast. And while I have a hard time taking compliments just by my nature of who I am, what I feel like saying back is I get thank you, but uh, I'm just trying to think stuff through. And a lot of the things that I create is me just trying to think things through. I love that approach. And I think that's what makes you so successful is that you don't claim to have all the answers. You are showing up with questions and then working through those questions as you blog. And yeah, your blog has been around since 2003. And I find that fascinating because in a world where, you know, list building and sales funnels are the sexy topics in the internet marketing world, I don't know of one article where you kind of dove into any of that. You really take on a different approach with the focus on longevity. And it's a more mindful marketing 
idea and a concept. Yeah, uh, even the even the podcast, which you know, I've never missed an episode. I don't even know how long in over a decade. It's every Sunday. Um, my 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 philosophy for the podcast, I think very much highlights that type of thinking, which is people are like, you know, how many downloads you get this week or last week or the week before? And the truth is I, I never look at my analytics, which makes people furious, but I just don't. It's a selfish act where I'm trying to corner somebody who I know, like, respect and want to have a coffee with. And this is just my way of reaching people who I probably shouldn't have the right to chat with. Um, but but I always looked at it like I don't care if you heard last week's or come back for next week. I think that there's three avenues for the show, which is one is you like the host. People just like my voice, like the way I ask questions or have conversations. Two is they like the guest. Sounds like, you know, that's somebody I know and I want to read their book or see them speak. Or three is they don't, they don't know, they don't know either, but they like the topic. Oh, it's an interesting topic. I should probably learn about that. Now in a perfect world, every week, you know, you come in, you're, you would you like all three, but I recognize one that that's, hard to do. I recognize that um, it's not easy to keep people for an hour. That's just the podcast almost every single week forever and ever. And so I, I look at each episode as being its own beginning, middle and end. And that's, you, you know, you're right. Maybe that has a bit of sort of mindfulness ethos in it and that's fine. But I don't look at it like, how does this convert into somebody becoming a client at Miram or does this convert into more book sales or how do I get them into a funnel? I don't, I mean, I think the biggest mistake I've made over, over my career is that I, I never captured emails or communicate that way in terms of email marketing. That bothers me. It's probably the one thing that like really gets under my skin. Like, oh, why didn't I just do that from day one and connect people that way? Um, again, not too late to start that. I think I have a good enough audience that that could be a future stated uh, marketing initiative, but that spirit of, look, today you might like the article, tomorrow you might not. Today you might like a post I have on Facebook, tomorrow you might not. This, this every day has to be better and I have to see this sort of top, bottom left moving to top right graph. I just never believed in. I always believed that, you know, you show up every day, you put stuff out there, you try to connect, you try to make it count. And some days you got to, you know, get knocked down and dust yourself up. And some days people are carrying you on their shoulders and not every day is going to be the same day. Absolutely. And I love what you said about, you know, just it, it's more about your life force and you get energy from your style and your approach to it. And if you did go back and you focused on your email list, you might not be the same person you are today because you'd be almost too data driven and too in the weeds with all the numbers. So I think there's a beauty in the essence of which you flow in your marketing. And I think that we need to, you know, really give kudos to that because it's something that's commendable. And I think that, and I'm not just saying that to boost your ego. I'm saying that from a real, from a marketer to a marketer. It's like beautiful when we find a way to move through the world as we want to move through the world, not how our industry is dictating how we should do it. Yeah. I mean, and the truth is when I say that, I always caveat that with, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Because if I were starting over and it were, you know, 2018 and now I didn't have a platform, I didn't have any, you know, content in the world, I didn't have an engine of marketing behind the agency, the brand, et cetera, I wouldn't do it this way because I think the world's changed a lot. I think that I'm somewhat like this because I can somewhat afford to be. Right, that I have a lot of legacy and that I have some sort of social currency and it's not huge. I mean, it's, you know, it's nice of you to say, and I love going on you know, shows or being part of marketing things, 
But the marketing world, as big as it is, it's very small. And as small as it is, I'm not that big of a name in it. I can, you know, there there are lists of the hundred best marketers that come out, and I'm not even close to being on that list. So I don't. I don't sort of take that and go, oh, like ego bruise, I need to do more. I kind of don't care. But I think that if I were mentoring you or talking to you and you were starting out, I would say to you that you really should care. And that should be something you aspire to do because I did that, only I did it a while back and I've sort of grown somewhat tired of that. And I know a lot of people on the other side of the hill of, of that ascent that feel the way I do, where it's like, look, it's less about me SEOing the content so that it gets picked up and more about me just emoting and hoping that it connects to an audience. And being a guy who spent a lot of years in the music industry, and to a certain degree, I still have a toe in that. You know, you see with songs and albums and artists every day, like they're putting, like they're so pure and real and nobody cares. And wow, what does it take to show up tomorrow and write something new when you just poured every part of your soul into something and nobody really cared. So I think about that a lot and and, and that creates a certain veneer in, in how I create my content. But if I were coaching someone or talking to them, I would say, look, you know, choose three or four mountains that you want to die on and work really hard at, at building that email list, at, at using that automation tool, at using those keywords and that retargeting and targeting to get your message in front of the right audience because you can do it. And you know, then I come home and I beat myself up because I don't do any of that. But again, it's, it's all about where you're at and what you, you need to do to get there. And that's great advice. I, I agree with you. That is, it is important. At the same time, Talk to me about this duality. You know, you mentioned that in the speaking or, you know, in the speaking world, um, there's this kind of veneer that you have to put on this, um, you know, it's a presentation. I was listening to your podcast with Michael Port, where you went into this in more detail. And it, it was an excellent episode. I highly recommend it to any speakers out there or wannabe speakers who uh, need some advice on this. I'm curious as to the intersection between hosting a podcast and, and being a writer. On the interview with Michael Port, you talk about, you break down the dynamic between speaking and writing, and they kind of feed off of each other in different ways. Can you talk to me more about how speaking and podcasting align? And does has podcasting and being a podcast host of Six Pixels of Separation helped your speaking engagements and have your speaking engagements helped your podcast? And, and what has that dynamic looked like over the years? Well, I don't know that I have any sort of hard and true data that I can go, sure, you know, X has equaled, X plus Y has equaled Z or Z, depending on where you live. I, I'm i not sure. I, I tend to look at things like, um, a bit like art. And you can blame Seth Godin for that, because I, I don't think I would ever use that word prior to him saying it's okay to use that word that your work is your art. Yes. I just said, yeah, I write about business. It's not that creative. Yeah. Uh, but but in, in listening to him talk and, and being fortunate enough to be in his orbit, I, I, I'm I'm sort of tr I'm I'm accepting it more, and what I do is I just tend to look at each thing as an art form. I think getting up and standing in front of an audience of twenty people is a really different art form than getting up and standing up in front of an audience of two thousand people. And I think understanding what your role is in that room in that day at that moment is an art form and preparing for it and doing well and being asked to come back or being paid to do that 
um, I think has its own sort of structure and cadence and, and just overall sonic power to it. You know, podcasting, again, is its own art form. Can you be compelling? And again, are we talking about video? Are we talking about audio? Are we talking about long form, short form, daily, monthly? I mean, there's so many different dynamics in that too. And speaking as well, you could be a great panel speaker. You could be a trainer. You don't have to be necessarily a keynote, get up on the main stage type of speaker. And the only things that I think are really similar is that you need to have a bit of the gift of gab. Mm-hmm. And that's basically really it. And I think what makes a podcast interesting isn't the questions of the host. It's do they have a good gift of gab? Do they have a way of pulling out story or, or listening conversations and true conversations, not just you ask a question and someone responds, um, to, to make something compelling? For a speaker, you know, I see a lot of speakers use a lot of the same examples and stories, and the ones that do well are the ones that are just simply compelling. They have a gift. You know, they have an ability to get up there. Is it a teachable gift? You know, that's something Michael Port and I, who I love, uh, talk a lot, have talked a lot about on podcasts. I think anybody can be a podcaster. I think anybody can be a public speaker. I think it's very rare air when you're really good at it. And I think being really good at it, again, to steal something that Seth Godin once said we did an event together, he said it's sort of his secret sauce. And the problem with the secret sauce is he doesn't know the recipe. Mm. You know, like how do, how do you produce that much content? So how do you write so clever and smart? He doesn't know. Uh, it's just sort of who he is and it's, it's how it connects to the audience and it's a moment in time. And that's what it is. And, I, you know, people don't like to hear that because then it sounds like, well, I can't control that. I think you can control training, understanding, using those skill sets. But I just don't think everyone's going to be that, that great at it. I think you get really good at it. You can train yourself. You can be competent. You can make it work. But it is somewhat rarefied error when you can get to a certain level and then get above and beyond that. And by the way, I'm not tapping myself or patting myself on the, sh- on the shoulders here at all. I mean, I, I've got a lot of friends who have much higher speaking fees than me and much larger audiences. And I've seen a lot of people come up that have, you know, literally lap me times 10 in those spaces. And that's not me being self-deprecating. It's simply me being able to acknowledge that while I might be good in comparison to one person, in comparison to someone else, I'm not all that memorable or interesting at all. And again, that's fine. It's it's something for me to strive for. It, it, it's it's audience building, and it's super exciting. I, I I very very clearly remember spending time with uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners know. Mm-hmm. And this was right before he launched VaynerMedia, and we had a sort of uh, you know sort of moment backstage. We're both speaking at an event, and he said, you know, what do you think about the agency? And Gary's just a little bit younger than I am. And I said, you know, Gary, it's an interesting time for you. I I started an agency and then I started creating content as a way to drive the agency and the speaking and the books and all that is, is a part of that. Gary came out and had the wine library thing and and the family business that he was really running and was very successful at and then the content and then said, I want to start and build this agency. And what I told him that day was, it will be interesting to see if you can do for others what you've done for yourself. Because historically, up until that time, very few people had been able to do that. Very few. I mean, and not that I have, but because we were an agency doing it from day one, it was sort of by nature that we were. And for all the people who are very critical of Gary, I'm most impressed with how 
hugely he did it, how much bigger he ever did it than I ever did for sure. And then at scale for others and beyond and beyond. And at the same time, still doing his own thing. Again, you don't have to like his message. You don't have to like the personality. You don't have to like the cadence. It, it may be for you. It may not be for you. I'm not judging that. I'm just looking at it purely as he was able to overcome that thing. And so I think part of it is it goes back to he has a really good gift of gab. And again, you know, it doesn't have to resonate with you. It's fine. There's mm-hmm. a ton of people that you know it does resonate with, and there's a ton of other people I'm sure resonate for you. But with that, what it was to me was a very powerful signal that, wow, if he has, let's call it a, a million followers. I actually don't know what he has. And I've got, let's say, and I don't know, let's call it 100,000. I could still grow 10 times and still not be as big as Gary's discernible market. That was really good for me. Like that, and again, some people might go, "Man, that like you suck." No, for me, it was like there's a market. There's a bigger market. I didn't reach my maximum capacity. I'm not doing so. I know that there are still avenues and roads and ways to connect that I haven't even tapped into yet. And and to me, it's not about how to speak and connect to podcasting. So again, I, I I just think there's some some skill sets that you might be able to use in both, but not many because they're just their own art forms in and of themselves. I entirely agree with you, and I love the Seth Godin approach that you have to uh, come to it as art, and it's self-expression. You know, it's content marketing, the way that I see it today, is an art form, and it's self-expression. Do you see it competing with traditional advertising today, or do you see it as a natural component and add value to advertising? Yeah, I mean, again, if you go back to... um uh, where I was in the really early days, um, I had a saying in Six Pixels of Separation, which was my first book, and really the saying had progressed from speaking that I had done in some other writing uh, that a lot of people latched onto, and it was everything is with, not instead of. Because when I came out, I think a lot of people were in the mindset of digital is going to kill everything. A lot of my peers were there. And I didn't think that. I thought, well, TV is really big and billboards are still really big and radio is really big. I don't know if it's going to kill everything. I think that there will be a shift. There will be an imbalance. There will be emotion. I'm betting my career that digital will come out on top of those other channels, but it's not the only thing. And advertising being a huge component of that. So I don't look at it and go, you know, content marketing is so much better than advertising. I don't, I think if you can do both, you should do both. And, And why wouldn't you? So I don't, I don't have it in me to say, um, you know, it's a zero sum game. I'm going to be Sith like, right? It's like it's one or the other or nothing. I believe everything is with, not instead of, until uh, that thing just doesn't meet your target. I know people are super successful, like just running events and doing these little sort of niche things, versus the big, you know, sort of branding campaign on TV, or I know people who are super successful with a handful of keywords and some great landing pages and optimization versus the big radio campaign. At the same time, I've got, you know, I do radio every Monday morning up here, and I can tell you there are countless businesses that rely almost solely on local radio, and that drives their business, and they don't really need that much else beyond that. So I don't like getting that sort of absolute this or that. I think everything is with, not instead of. I like that. Everything is with, not instead of. So it's really more about the integrated approach to everything, you know, and, and that goes back to the theme of using it as art. It's, you know, 
it's creating a recipe. It's like taking a little bit of traditional ads, combining it with content marketing and social media and podcasting and speaking. And you kind of just build your smorgasbord, so to speak, and then put that out in the world. And that becomes your, you know, your inbound marketing. Yeah, I think the the trick with that, and it's a challenge that I constantly self question: is am I in the right? Am I, am I on the right path? And at what point do I change, adopt, and move things? So, you know, I I do a whole presentation now based off of where I got to where I am with my content, and I call it you know how to build your content marketing center of excellence. And and part of that, which people are surprised by, is that I talk about choosing your format almost before you choose what you want to put into it. Like I just knew that. I like to write long form. I, you know, God bless Seth. I, I wish I could write that well, that that quickly. Like he's so good at it. <laughs> That's not my skill set. I'm better at like you know eight eight hundred to a thousand words. You know, if I can do a daily, fantastic. <laughs> I usually can't anymore. Um, I, I know that you know I can't do a good five minute podcast. As people who are probably listening to this can tell. I, I tend to blab and talk a lot and dig and scratch and so I sort of. When look, there's short form, long form. I'm going to be more long form. There's text, images, audio, video. I'm going to focus on text and audio. And again, you could look at that and go, you know, no video. Like video is really hot now. It is. It's huge. What? No images. Like that's really hot. I, it's true. I just I I don't have a passion for it. And and that that could be a mistake. Like in in three months we might have this conversation again. And I'm like, no, I'm I'm all in now on doing videos because I figure out something in my brain that's like, oh, this is the way I want to do that. But for right now, and it's been this way a while, and I, I do I sort of beat myself up on it because I'm trying to think of what what else is it just too repetitive now? Am I just writing too much and doing too many one-hour podcasts? Should I be thinking differently, breaking it up, doing something else, adding in video, maybe going, you know, doing more on Instagram? I mean, all of those things. And people go, well, you know, you shouldn't really think that way. I think it's important because that is where I know my skill set and and passion somewhat lies. Like I like writing, I like speaking, so I want to bank on those. But I also have to be able to self-question and go, well, if a Gary Vaynerchuk or Sally Hogshead or whoever comes along and does this or this, and they're using these other ways of doing it, should I not pay attention to it or am I missing out? And I think that those are all very normal and natural ways to think about how you evolve it. And that's a very natural question to ask yourself. You know, I think it comes down to getting out of your comfort zone at the same time. Um, You know, you mentioned in another episode, another podcast, that you aren't a natural speaker, but you knew that you had to see speaking as a way to make an impact in the world. It wasn't about you. It was about your message. And that required you getting out of your comfort zone. So how much do you think that the choice to be on certain marketing platforms are about knowing yourself and knowing the impact you can create on those particular channels versus getting out of your comfort zone and creating an impact across all different types of channels? Well, I don't don't know that that's, again, like one and not the same. Mm-hmm. I think that, that those two things have to actually come together for it to be successful. And that's where I think you'll find the more natural flow of things. The problem, of course, with this is it's not so immediate or obvious. You know, If you're starting out now on a specific platform with the type of content you want to create, it's not like the first thing you create, everyone's going to go, oh my God, I can't, you're finally here. We've been waiting for you. Yeah, it's not not really realistic. We but but the thing is, we tend to look at the lottery winners, right, or the the one that went viral, which is a lottery winner, and go, this this person just sort of shot this thing, and then it became blah blah blah. Um, 
businesses have life cycles. And, and for many people, and I believe this, that a business's life cycle is about 10 years on average. That's a long time. And I believe that, you know, again, whether it's a Seth Godinism or Brene Brownism of showing up and doing the work and being vulnerable in the sense of putting something different out there that isn't sort of like it would be easy for me to be like you know the five reasons every business should pay attention to marketing automation it'd be easy for me to write write something like that i probably could it's just when i hear myself even saying that i get bored yeah and i would much rather you know write something on oh you know i've seen some marketing automation stuff i really feel we're going to mess this up let's please not mess this up right and so I'll write something that's more like, you know, dear marketers, let's please not mess up marketing automation. And it's it's not that the title is better. It's that in my head, the way the content is flowing fits the, the format, the medium, and also it does fit the development of my voice. Absolutely. And that's the thing, right? Like brands don't always know. They think their voice is like really corporate. You know, like we are going to be the leading value-added reseller of this business intelligence technology and nobody will take us seriously unless we use a lot of like really complex, uh, you know, acronyms and complex words and buzzwords. And I get somewhat tired of that, but then I also have to pause and realize that, look, you come from the music business and particularly writing about the music business. It was really irreverent. I was writing for alternative weeklies and really crazy rock magazines where they want character and you know does everyone's interviewing you know the guys in metallica or whoever it is they want your piece to have some life and character to it beyond just what the artist is saying mm -hmm. i think businesses can learn a lot from that and again like it's it's polarizing i think the reason sometimes my brand doesn't scale is because i'm i'm polarizing by opinion it's just the people don't like the taste of, of what my content feels like that's fine and you're okay with that I am, mm -hmm. but most most brands wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I resonate with that a lot. I, you know, there's so much clickbait in the world out there, and you don't want to be part of the problem. You want to be part of the solution. You want to get to the core of what makes good content instead of just writing an article that just gets clicks and eyeballs, but there's no real meat or substance behind it. You like to bring meaning into the the conversation, which is respectable, and I'm I'm totally online with that vision. Yeah, I try. You know, it doesn't always work, and there are for sure moments where I feel like, oh, come on, like, can't, shouldn't you just like, you know, get it go? And look, it's it's the nature of the beast. You have to be able to to know that, like, if I was being hired to write content, it, it, it comes from. In fact, I got to like, you know, the biggest lesson I learned in journalism is that you write with your own voice, which is true, but you also write for the medium. So. You know, me writing for my own magazine was really different than me writing a record review for Hour, which was the alternative weekly here in Montreal where I live that I wrote for, for forever. And that was really different when I wrote an article for Newsweek about you know, Bon Jovi or whomever back then in the day. I, I would really have to, in my head, think about what's the voice of that, of that magazine? What's the voice of that newspaper? What's the voice of that TV show, the radio thing? Like even, you know, I just, like I said, I do radio every Monday morning. We happen to be recording this on a Monday and I have to go in there with like, you know, it's a Monday, it's early at seven ten. but I got to like before, like put in the mindset of like morning crew and people want to laugh and sort of smirk. And I have to choose stories that I wouldn't probably ever blog about or talk about on my podcast, but it's interesting to that audience. And, you know, brands 
can't think like that. I mean, the whole reason we are where we are with Facebook today is because brands were so bad on it. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like, oh, it's free? Okay, like, like this if you like the sun. You know, check out, click here to read our white paper. Like, they'd put anything out there because it was free and they could. And so Facebook throttled them and then made them pay. And everyone's like, what? I don't get it. Like, we paid people to like our brand and ran these contests to earn all these likes. And now you're making, like, what don't you get? It's a sucky user experience for the person who's on Facebook. Now, had you been really interesting and dynamic like some brands are, and there are some brands that do this really well, I'd want you in there next to like if you and I were friends on Facebook, right? Like I'd want that brand there because, wow, it's like very how I want to be spoken to. It's changing. It's getting better, but I still think most brands don't write for the audience or the medium as well as they could. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it reminds me of uh, the Clue Chain Manifesto. This came out in like 1999, and it really just goes into detail about how to be more human with your customers. And, you know, what it comes down to is the technologies and the platforms change, but ultimately what we're doing with the technology is what we've always done. And there's not much more. There, There are all these shiny objects that come along all the time. But, you know, we're always trying to find a way to differentiate ourselves with these new technologies. But at the same time, it really comes down to the context that you put behind your message. Uh, so I'm curious, what are, um, you know, your, with your background as a music journalist and the era that we're living in today, you know, with the technology intersecting with journalism and and art and marketing. There's so many opportunities out there, yet at the same time, there's so many, there's so much noise. How can you explain, you know, how can you simplify what's happening with journalism today um, to listeners who may not really understand the context behind what's happening with the mix of everything kind of meeting together? Uh, not, not an easy question to answer because there's a lot of factors there, you know. You have a place where, you know, it's primarily a duopoly between Facebook and Google. Amazon is moving in, but right now it's a Facebook Google world. Facebook will not really accept the responsibility of being a media publisher. The incumbent media publishers that are the brands we know, love and quote unquote trust depending on which side of the political spectrum you sit on are having a harder and harder time getting people to come to their websites or pick up their print, radio, magazines, TV shows. And so they're putting on Facebook where, you know, journalism is struggling from an advertising crisis. They're now on a platform that is forcing them to pay to reach their audience and still create quality journalism. They're now on a platform where they are in and of themselves, not just competing within their own medium of competitive newspapers locally or regionally, but suddenly every newspaper in the world and every magazine in the world and every TV show in the world and every blogger in the world. And you can just see how it's very, very difficult for great content, uh, consistently and relevant contextually is going to happen and then be paid for it's very and again like that's putting aside the entire problem of fake news and control of power and centralizations of power and things like that and 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 putting aside culturally where we're at you know in terms of the impact of reality television how we got to we are in our political situation and things like that. So I, it, it's, it's not an easy thing to answer. And, and you, you can look and say, well, there are models that, that we see of, that, that, are, that are working. New York Times is doing stuff. The Guardian is doing stuff. I think they are, but they're still uh, a fraction of their former self. And 
if we took away the main gateway that people heard about these brands, which would probably be Facebook, what would happen? And that is somewhat happening because Facebook is throttling that content or asking these publishers to pay more to reach that audience. So I don't have an easy answer. I don't think anyone does. And then the problem with that becomes how do we as consumers, if we're not that media savvy or media literate, engage? And that's that to me is the sort of bigger challenge. It's the fact that we, we live in a very non-media literate world. We live in a world where most people don't look outside of their Facebook circle. Their Facebook circle is primarily people they know, like, and trust. So you it doesn't create a more connected world. It creates a more connected world to people who are like you. And again, historically, that's not healthy. Whether your local newspaper used to lean left or right isn't really relevant. What is relevant is that by, let's say, if all you cared about was the sports section, you'd still have to flip through a couple things and they'd catch your eye and you might just stop and see something serendipitous or by its nature that might um, – it might inform you, it might educate you, it might change your opinion, or it might spark something else. In a world where we're controlling that feed by the people we're connected to in our areas of interest, I think the killing of serendipity is really problematic to journalism and to democracy. It's interesting you say that because just a few years ago, I loved the serendipity and the synchronicities that happened with social media. This was just like maybe two or three years ago. And when you say that, I don't know how to feel because I want to believe in the best in everything. And I, I'm an eternal optimist. I try to look at things, you know, with a hint of hope in everything. Yet at the same time, you know, we are in a really interesting paradigm. And, and I know that you mentioned earlier, I don't know if you watched, um, you mentioned earlier that you watched some Netflix shows. I don't know if you're into Black Mirror. Love it. Yeah, me too. So, there's this interesting dystopian outlook that's happening and it's making me question and think about, is this really to the benefit of humanity? And I'm curious your thoughts as to, do you take a more optimistic view or a pessimistic view? Or are you somewhere in between as to where we're heading with social and the serendipity of life? I didn't think of this. Someone else said this. And if I knew who I would tell you who, but they said, you know, fire it's one of the greatest inventions of mankind. I mean, it gave us warmth and led to a lot of things. But fire also burned down our homes and kills a lot of people. Hmm. And I think that technology is very much like that. And I think artificial intelligence will be very much like that. So, you know, it can be weaponized. It can be militarized. It can be polarizing. It could be the worst thing ever. As an individual, I mean, you mentioned the Clue Train Manifesto earlier. It's a book that I mean, changed my life. There's no doubt about it. I became lucky over the years to know the authors of it and have them on my show and read and reread the book to the point where I blurbed the uh, the 10th or 20th anniversary book when they did the, that that edition of it. I was, you know, really honored to be asked to to blurb it. It was the 10th anniversary of that book, and um, you know, I, I want to believe that markets are conversations, which is one of the sort of core concepts of that book. I want to believe that like this is a moment where we can use this stuff to be better, and we and many examples of that are true. But at the same time, I also can't not see the other side. You know, yes, you can go as dystopian and, and sort of near futuristic as Black Mirror does, and it's it's pretty crazy, funny, and threatening to watch all at the same time. But I also, you know, I look at it more from through the prism of having three young kids. And, um, you know, I don't 
talk about age or gender or who they are or show them and 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 then or anything like that from for for many reasons but it's more about watching them and their friends and how parents interact with this stuff that really terrifies me you know, when really we talk about things like, you know, they talk about screen policies in places like camp and school. And it's like, do, do they have screens or are they not allowed screens? When are they allowed screens? When are they not allowed screens? And I'm like, how is that the only part of the conversation? To me, it's like, okay, if you allow screens, uh, what kind of content are they allowed to, to, to have access to? And then what kind of content are they allowed to show others? And do they have permission to? And if you're going to allow that, uh, what is the education and literacy level of the people supervising those kids and understanding what's appropriate and what's not. And that gets a lot of blank stares <laughs> because all they thought about was should they have screens or not? Good or bad? Screens, good or bad? And like it's one part of a very, very complex layer. It's one peeling up down of skin on the onion. And so that's when I, when I see that and realize there's a, a total lack of media literacy and tech literacy. It's absolutely terrifying to me. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> the blank stares are the scariest part because it's then you realize that there are there is no framework for this. There is no. Yeah, you know, I mean, how many people do you know that, that have kids where uh, you know the mom get or dad gets a new iPhone and they just toss their older one to the kid and it's like, what's on there? What do they have access to? You know, think about what you do have access to. Just you know, and I'm not gonna say just, it's just YouTube alone or whatever. It's it's literally everything. You're, it's a Pandora's box, and without the controls. And, and again, I don't blame the parents. They don't have the media or tech literacy. I mean, their lives are controlled by these devices. And I have like really simple rules around that, like when you can use them, when you can't use them. Uh, you know, like when my friend's phone beeps every time someone messages them, I'm like, you know, it doesn't have to do that. <laughs> or you can turn off all notifications if you want. You right. know, it just, it, it, it's come set up and stacked to make you addicted. Exactly. Uh, we don't know the implications of this on kids. So now they're talking about, you know, social media. Okay, social media, but it's also access to mobile device. It's like everything all at once. So, yeah, I'm 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 a very optimistic person by nature. Um, I'm also a very opportunistic person by nature. It's what's brought me to where I am in the world, where people like you want to talk to people like me, and I get it. And all the content I create is for sure in the space of. Let's try to make this better. Let's try to educate. Let's try and make it right. But every day that's bumping up against the reality of watching these parents not understand what we're talking about right now and letting very, very young children have access to tools that we have no idea what the, their capabilities are with content on it. That, and then you know, people say to me, well, come on. You know, it's too, well, Genie's out of the bottle. I, I think that's a really – I think the genies out of the bottle line is the same thing as as being um, as saying to someone else, you know, uh, playing the devil's advocate. You know, like you can say, you can say that to anything; it doesn't really matter. Like I, I don't, and I just don't think that's the right answer. Well, genies out of the bottle, so to, you know, to get nothing we can do. Too bad. Uh, well, I don't, I don't think that that's fair. I, I, I think that if we were like that, we wouldn't have this moment in, t in time of things like hashtag me too and stuff like that, which is so important. Yeah. And it comes down to that's the same argument when people are saying like, oh, I don't care about internet privacy. I have nothing to hide. It's the same s similar type of mindset where it's like, oh, the genie is already out of the bottle. This is where we're heading. No, we are, we have the ability right now at this point in time to control the conversation and to lead it to the benefit of humanity. 
which or, is, or, or just educate, like just yeah. move it to the point where I have enough information and understanding where I can make a more informed and practical decision. And the thing that I say to, to, to a lot of people who say to me, oh, genie's out of the bottle is why don't you let your kids go to porno theaters? And I'm not judging pornography, but they're sort of like laugh, like I'm not letting my seven-year-old go to a porno theater, but you're giving them that in the phone. Because <laughs> it doesn't take much to go from YouTube to you porn. Yes, it's a brilliant point. Wow. Uh, so I know that you're writing your next book. You're actually in the process, as the Canadians would say, <laughs> process um, of writing your next <laughs> book. Uh, I'm sure you're going to be incorporating all of these interesting, unique ideas into your book. Is there any one idea that stands out at that as you're writing that you're super excited to dive deeper in and when can we expect to uh, be able to purchase this new book yeah i'm not down the road on it yet and i sort of the way i operate is i tend to do a lot of i do about 40 to 60 presentations every year and i'm constantly changing it and adding to it and and thinking about that so i tend to think of books as which is very different than most people uh people mostly write books and speak i speak then write books and i just don't feel right now like i'm in the place of oh Book number three is X, Y, and Z. I've got a working title. I've got some thoughts in place. I think that the presentation is definitely moving in the right direction. I'd say at a macro level, the concept really is around how do we get people to understand that disruption isn't destruction. And I know that sounds maybe somewhat pedantic or simple, and that's fine, but I'm, I'm trying to work through this idea like we were talking about just before, that it's more opportunistic than dystopian to think about this moment in time and not be like, oh, like this is, whole thing is like a very expensive thing with a large IT roadmap and infrastructure that we're not prepared for versus, wow, wouldn't this be great to no longer have an IT infrastructure and everything's on the cloud and we're just renting this thing by the month versus trying to run it off of our servers. And that type of stuff, while it may not sound sexy, I think is changing how people buy and how they think about brands and how they connect to brands because of technology. So that's the sort of Play-Doh that I'm messing around with right now, but it's definitely not anywhere near a place where I would say to you, I'm in the middle of writing it and it's going to be available in X amount of months. Um, I always say that books to me are like kids, and um, you know, right now my water hasn't broke yet, so it's, it's, I'm not in labor. <laughs> That's a great point. And I'm excited for when you do happen to birth that book. Um, I'm sure a lot of your readers and listeners will, will want to read it. Uh, in the meantime, where can we go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. Easiest thing is to just Google Mitch Joel or go to MitchJoel.com and that'll redirect you to where, wherever it is that I'm doing something current. Uh, you can check out uh, our agency at MiramAgency.com. And um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Mitch. It's really a pleasure to connect with you. Nice meeting you. Thanks for the time. Thanks for listening to The Art of Humanity. Please follow us on Twitter at It's Jessica Ann. Join us next week with your host, Jessica Ann. Evolve your business with The Art of Humanity.